Well, I'm getting ready for my trip to London, uh, which I take tomorrow Thursday, and I've got a to-do list here. Notice the top thing on my list. Guess what it is? A bidet. Oh, well, that would be nice <laughs> to get one in, in London, but I don't think I'll be quite as lucky as I was in Italy. But the number one thing for me is to do the damn bro show. Well, I guess you better do the show today then. <laughs> And it's time for the bro show. Oh, hey, hey, all good. Yeah. My name's Jerry. My name's John. We talk about four things. I'm not going to tell you what they are. You're going to have to listen a little bit to find out. But this I'm is. Listen to. Well, good. This is our 12th season, John. Our 12th season. Oh, wow. That's a lot of shows. Yeah, it's the season of the meerkat. Each season, as you know, we have an animal in this. Our animal, and this is not just the 12th season, it's the last episode of the 12th season. This yeah, is the old 26. meerkat season is winding down. Yeah, this will be it. We've got another season and another animal, and we have tight security on this. So, oh. you have no, no one has heard, John. You have done well, by the way. So far, so far, I've done so very far. well. Okay, so yeah, that's the deal. Uh, and, you know, people who want to subscribe, they can go to bro.show, and there's subscribe buttons all over the place. Just hit one. You'll get an email from us once a week, and as John always likes to point out, no hassles, no harassment. Yep. Yeah. And we're not going to beat and up on you. No. No, no guilt. None of that stuff. You know? I, you know, I listen, I, I watch actually some, sub, I, I read, excuse me, some sub stacks and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has one and I love his sub stack, but man, does he pour it on heavy to get people to subscribe? <laughs> That's ego driven. That's okay. He's a good guy. He's yeah. a solid guy. He's a totally solid guy. And you know what? I'm, I'm probably going to end up subscribing and paying. I got a free subscription now, but I'm going to get a paid subscription with it because he okay. earns every penny. But well, we are free, totally free. Okay. Wow. T-shirt, T-shirt. So, yeah, well, listen, I decided to go original, and I got the original bro show, fist bump, T-shirt, black and white, podcasting what? our way through cancer, age, and loss. Wow. How you never guess what I have. The only but goody. What do you have? Uh, I've got a gray bro show T-shirt. It's kind of gray blue, and it has a set list on the back of it. Oh, do I remember those yeah. were the good old days? Yeah, the second appearance at the uh, Clark Street Ale House. It was something. Yeah, that will live in, live in infamy. Uh, the, the forgotten tapes. Uh, wow, it was impressive. Yeah, well, as as they say, that'll leave a mark. Yeah, and it's it's still on Facebook. Mary Jane, you downloaded it. Jeez. I know, right? <laughs> That's scary. It is scary. Oh. There's there's proof. There's proof out that we're out there. We're gonna have to get rid of it. Anyway, let's get on with the show. What do you say? Who, what's our uh, sponsor? Hey, our sponsor is the Animal Legal Defense Fund, and their mission is to protect the lives and advance the interests of those critters out there, whether they be wildlife or domestic, through the legal system. And this fund accomplishes this mission 
by filing high-impact lawsuits to protect the animals, providing free legal advice to other lawyers, training them to, and to assure that the abusers are held accountable, and supporting mm-hmm. tough animal legislation. So, yeah, they do. Uh, all good. Uh, this is yeah, they that do. they've got a lot of opportunity out there. They're in the news quite mm-hmm. often. These are this is a very active nonprofit, and most yes, important. They are. They put out they some have really good swag. swag. Yes, they do. I've got one next to you, and they are wonderful. Yes. If you want to see their stuff, just go to the site. We've got links at the bottom of our show notes on Substack, and we've also got a link to our own stuff. And we use the same supplier, Bonfire, and all of our profits, <laughs> such as they are, from the sale of our T-shirts go to the Animal Legal Defense Fund. So whoever you buy from, whether you buy a t-shirt from them or us, all goes to the same place. I think we've got ourselves a really good, you know, we're going to winding, we're winding down on the Bearcat stories here, our final one. And I think it's a time for us to kind of maybe take a look back on some of the things that we talked about just to kind of reinforce our understanding. Sure. And one of these features of the animal is altruistic behavior. Now, uh, the meerkats are amazing in this regard. Uh, I think if we take a look and try to compare them to humans, we think about humans. Well, humans have altruism. Uh, they are, you know, they, they take care of their family, uh, their, you know, their, their family and their, their near family. And probably yep. under the right circumstances, they would even protect young if they saw them in, in danger. In fact, yes. uh, but quite often it's like uh, it, it's newsworthy uh, because mm. it's it can be kind of rare, you know, where they'll do something yeah. like that. But with meerkats, altruistic behavior is a way of life. It's just another day in the, of of doing the, the job. Their 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 job is a sentry. So mm-hmm. perhaps you could explain some of the, the of, of what they do and how come they do it so well and how hard they work at it. Yeah, they, they really do. Uh, you know, that's this is one of the enduring themes of, of most of the things we read about meerkats. It's how well they take care of their pups, uh, how how they are assiduous about their duties as sentries and as secure members of the security force, how they ward off other mobs from coming in and taking over their territory. They are just completely on the job. These guys are energetic. They're devoted. And you know what? It's not by kinship, John. If you if, yep. if you've read you've read the links we have in this this, oh, yeah. this story this segment, it's not by kinship, which makes it unusual for for mammals. And so, with, you see it somewhat with chimpanzees and gorillas. They do some of the same thing. Other members of and wolves, you know, other members of the family, you know, ants and what have you will help. But very often, they'll just take in a pup that's wandering around or something like that and teach them, you know, how to kill a scorpion, how to get back to the hole, help them get away from a hawk or an eagle. They just are always on it. Now, that's surprising, okay? But, John, there's something that's amazing. What is that? Are you ready? Are you ready? I'm ready. For a meerkat to help out and become part of your family, you do not need to be a meerkat. Wow, this yeah. brings, brings, we've talked a little bit, teeny bit about this maybe. Maybe you can expound yeah. upon that. Yeah, well, in the case of, it, we, the thing we did talk about in the past was there was a family of mongoose 
who, uh, you know, there are, I think, four of them. And yep. this solitary meerkat did not have a mob. And they put the meerkat in with the mongoose and mongooses and not a problem. He just acted exactly like one of them, one of the a tribe and fit right in and did the things that a meerkat does that a mongoose does not do, like sentry duty. You know, they don't have wow. the eyes for doing good sentry work, but meerkats do. So he did that for them. And then, you know, I, I was telling you the other day, I saw this video of this guy riding in a car with a meerkat on his shoulder. For real. Oh, and oh. yeah, and the meerkat was doing what meerkats do. He was watching the street. His head was swiveling. He was looking for trouble. He was looking wow. to see if there was anything that could harm his family. And he was in a car with a, a guy, a wife, and two kids. He was a member of that tribe. He was a member. Cool. He, yeah. You do not have to yeah. be a meerkat for a meerkat to fit in with you. That's pretty funny. And and also kind of interesting. I, uh, I, I like to point out the fact, some of the byproduct of this, we know that the meerkat is not what you call, it's not an extinct species. We know that it no. is in rather adverse conditions being in the desert there in South Africa. But part of what allows them to have that, let's just think about the numbers. When a meerkat mm. is confronted and the mob is confronted with a predator, that predator mm. is going to, who's, who are they going to face first? They're going to face the father, they're going to, the senior members of the, of the meerkats, which means that the younger ones are allowed to continue living, which means that the younger ones have a much higher survival rate. Do you think? They do. They do. I agree with you 100%. And you know, the other thing that this study showed was the, the fitness level of uh, a meerkat is very high. And there's no, you know, a lot of, of mammals and especially carnivores, there's going to be an omega and there's going to be an alpha. And the omega is usually puny because he or she doesn't get as much food. They don't have that with meerkats. They're all well-fed and fit. The same as everybody else in the mob. Every once in a while, you know, a mother will take uh, uh, one meerkat aside and raise it as a, 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 you know, somebody to follow on in her footsteps, you know, and they'll feed that, that meerkat a little more sometimes. But by and large, you know, keeping them safe, keeping them fit, it's an unusual thing. And it was cited in this study that we, we linked to here. Our word today is Nisei. N-I-S-E-I. It's a Japanese word. And what it means is it means a native-born citizen of the United States whose parents were Japanese immigrants. Um, so I got this from a, a guide uh, it's a guide to Japanese-American uh, gen, uh, generational terminology. There's really only one other word that, that you hear that is connected to this. And that's that first generation, which is born in Japan. And they are known as Issei, I-S-S-E-I. Ah. Um, so the, the thing is that um, there is a, you can go down the order, third, you know, first generation, second, third, fourth. They've all been kind of categorized. They have a name for each one. They have, a name. they have a name for each one. I think the best thing uh, when we talk about our topic, which deals with this, is talk about Japanese-born uh, Players, uh, we're going to talk about baseball versus the American-born Japanese players. So, um, and categorizing right, that right. when when we get into the discussion. 
so that's the word uh, Nisei, uh, and uh, it, it's it it comes into our topic an awful lot. It's a pretty important word. You know, I I ran this by Sarah down in Australia, and we completely stumped her on this one, John. Really? Wow. Yeah, she didn't have a clue. And I'm a little surprised because they're a lot closer to Japan than we are, and they probably have a larger Japanese population, or just as large. Uh, so I was a little surprised, but this this word stumped her entirely. She had not heard it. And I'd say I, I hadn't either. And so this kind of brings us to our, our main topic, if I can do a little intro for you here and tee it up. Sure. Uh, John's going to talk about something that at first I thought, oh, no, he's not going to talk about that, is he? But then once he started giving me the facts and some of the deets, I was really kind of stunned. I had no idea. I really did not understand how the Japanese people got so crazy about baseball. And yeah. I, I, I didn't know. I didn't know when. I didn't know how. And also, I, I you know, I just watch baseball today, and I'm not a big baseball history guy. You know, I turn on the TV, I get to watch Shohei Otani hit these amazing home runs and, and pick and pitch these crazy games, you know, that he wins, you know, 20 strikeouts or whatever he does, you know. Uh, it's amazing, and I just take it for granted. But it wasn't all this, always this way, was it, John? It is not. And I, I think just to kind of continue that thread before I jump in, to say that um, – Quite often, what we do is we think about Japanese baseball, the Japanese, their introduction to baseball, lying in. Well, it's got to be a post World War II thing where we wanted to right. cement a, a strong relationship and kind of help them get through their recovery from the war. So what we what do we do? We send people over there with a few bats and balls, and we teach them how to play baseball. Wrong. 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 So because it their introduction to baseball goes back to 1872. When educators, educators from crazy. the United States went to Japan to teach them a few American ways and decided that they needed a little bit of physical education. And so what they did is they introduced baseball. And with that introduction, it's, it just spread throughout the, the country with other teachers doing the same thing. And before you know it, uh, what we've got is we've, we, we've got Japanese uh, totally embracing, embracing our, our national pastime. Uh, this and I think throughout this thing, a lot of people, as, as we look at it, think it, think about the fact that you're gonna. The typical response is, well, they're little, they can't play that well. So you know <laughs> what? If if they didn't quite make it as fast as we did, well, that's probably the reason. They they got a physical problem. Well, I think you better put that mm, on the back burner. It's not no. quite that way because because I could no. give you cite you at least three or four. Uh, situations where the the Japanese players, once they got to the United States, uh, were given where we tried to introduce them, our clubs tried to introduce them, but it was just overwhelming the opposition to having these Japanese players advance through our normal system, whether it be amateur, professional, all the way up to the major leagues. They ran into the same types of barriers that we often think about with respect to the the progress of the blacks as it comes to to making it to the to the you know to the national yeah. pastime baseball so hey so here's what's happening what happened is they learn baseball yeah. so what do they do they figure well let's let's make sure let's cultivate uh, our, our relationship and also learn a little bit more tours of college baseball teams from japan came over 
to the United States as early as 1905. Continue 1905. to do that. 1905. Whoa. That's early. Now, That's early. at the same time, we were going the other direction, and a lot of in order to promote the international nature of the sport, um, you know, with economic interest and in, you know getting other sure. countries involved, we ended up having a series of, of teams going to to Japan, American teams going there, all-star teams. Some of those teams were college all-stars. Others were professionals, including major leaguers. I think one of the interesting things, a couple of interesting facts I noted with respect to the to the, uh, the the college team, Japanese teams coming over here, they would often play American teams. They would beat them and the Americans would get so upset that the Japanese Players would have to run, a, scatter, and get out of out of town real quick. As soon as they got to about the eighth or ninth inning, they said, "We better get all packed up, ready to leave this top stand because we're in trouble." So, wow. On the other side of it, the Americans went over. Often felt that they they needed to kind of make it a kind of a show. So they would often, yeah. they would they would uh, throw intentionally throw games, and they would uh, offend the Japanese. To the extent that it did somewhat hurt this relationship, but back in the, in the biggest famous tour was the 1934 tour, tour which Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, and a fellow uh, second string catcher by the name of Mo Berg went over there to play a series of games, and that's probably the, the, the best known Mo one. Berg. Mo yeah, Berg, Mo the spy. Berg, the, the spy who eventually uh, spied during World War II. So there's yeah. one thing though that happens in the United States which people don't often remember. And that is we have a uh, U.S. government enacts the Immigration Act of 1924. This act completely prohibits immigration from Asia. It was designed, it was designed to limit immigration in general, but boy, did it really pick on Asians, particularly restrictive yeah. of the Eastern and Southern Europeans and Asians. So it was really, really bad. I like the way Calvin Coolidge says, here's here, it says, America must remain American. Ooh, that sounds a little familiar. <laughs> Ooh, that's scary stuff. <laughs> that is scary stuff and ironic and hypocritical. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't until 1965, 40 years later, that this act was was removed uh, the, so that de facto discrimination against the Asians wow. was eliminated. So here we are. So what's happened to a couple of other events that, that, are, that are pretty well known. So, Jet, you know, we think, well, They've got college, uh, you know, got universities playing baseball in, in Japan. What about the establishment of professional baseball? Well, that actually starts in a team starts in 34. A league starts in 1936. In fact, the league, league which is called Nippon Professional uh, Baseball, NBO, uh, what we know today as that same league, which has both a central and a Pacific division, which are called leagues. Um, continues to this day. In fact, there's only one year in which they didn't go since 1936, and that was in 1945. Um, wow. So we've got we got this tremendous uh, start with respect to baseball as it relates to a professional ball there. And I mean, the, the first team that was formed called the Your Murray Giants uh, from a newspaper called Your Murray actually is the Euromurray Giants that we know today in the professional leagues, which is considered the New York Yankees of Japanese professional baseball. I mean, they've won 22 worlds, their own Japanese series. So it gives you an idea. Wow. So we got a little speed bump here comes in the forties. We not only have a war, which we're fighting against this, this, this yeah. country, which has really embraced baseball. But in addition to that, Franklin, 
Franklin Delano Roosevelt signs an executive order in in March of uh, 1942, which over puts over 125,000 people of Japanese ancestry on the West Coast. They uproot them from their homes and puts them in camps, mostly in California and Arizona. So what what's happened? They, these they're given say you got two suitcases to fill and you're out of here. We're going to send you to wow. camp. We don't know where we're going to do that yet. We're going to park you someplace for a little while. Once we get the camps somewhat in order, then we're going to ship you out again. And so people were scattered from their families, from their town friends, et cetera. Property. And hmm. yeah, it was it was re- really, really bad. And so these so what happens, though, is they you know, they're looking for a morale booster. And fortunately, the one of the camps, the Gila River Camp, which is located was located in Phoenix, with the support of the internment uh, camp director, the, there's a fellow. And another thing that brought this topic up for me is I just finished a book that was given to me by one of our active, very active listeners, uh, Jason Otto. So I need to give a shout out to Jason. Jason, I told him I was going to do this. And he's so modest. He says, please don't do that again. <laughs> but Too bad. Man, Jason, Too sorry, bad. Jason, I'm going to have to Too do bad. it. And yep. so a fellow by the name of uh, Kenichi uh, Zenomura, uh, he ended up with the, the, the uh, cooperation of the camp director, established the Bills of Ballfield, and also establishes a 32 team league leagues wow. like this are formed in other camps they go back and forth between the camps uh playing ball playing in tournaments etc and uh, it was nice. one of the things that helped them uh basically get th- get through now so we got one more little piece of uh history that we need to get through and that is we got 1947 now 1947 yeah. is a magic date with respect to racial prejudice and the elimination of some of it in as it relates to baseball because in that year, Jackie Robinson be- makes his historic debut with the Brooklyn Dodgers, becoming the first African-American to play in the major leagues in the 20th century. Uh, wow. And you think, well, that's a great date. Well, where do, where do the Japanese fit into this? Where do they fit in? Well, guess what? 1947 is a good date for them, too, because yeah. the Japanese American by name of for Willie uh, Yanamini, uh, uh, he becomes the first Japanese American to play national football for an NFL club, San Francisco yep. 49ers. Yes, this guy's did. best sport is baseball. But <laughs> where is he able to break the barrier? Was it in baseball? No, it happened to be in football. In fact, football was a little rough for him too. So as a result, what he ended up doing was realizing that his best sport was baseball. He ends up becoming the first Japanese-American, Japanese born in the United States, to go over and play in the Nippon Professional Baseball League. And he just doesn't have a tryout. He doesn't have just a wow. season or two. This fella ends up becoming one of their stars and on the Uramari Giants and plays there for over 10 years and helps create a, a, a kind of a cultural bond between Japan and the U.S., oh. So, so let me I ask you this. When did we get a, a Japanese baseball player in the United States? That is an interesting story, because what happens is in 1964, uh, U.S. and Japan says, well, you know how we have like foreign exchange students? They decided what they were going to do is they were going to have an exchange ball player from Japan come over and play in the United States. And of course, he would not be able to play in the major leagues. He'd have to be playing down in the minors. They picks the San Francisco Giants. His name is Masasori uh, Murakami. And he's playing in the minors, doing so well. And he was only supposed to be here for a couple of months. 
but he's doing so well in the minors that he comes up to the majors and in 19. Wow. So in 1965, he ends up playing for the San Francisco Giants, becomes one of their better relievers. So that three or four month uh, trip that he had over here, well, guess what? Uh, you, you better get your green card because you're going to be here for a while. And sure enough, yeah. he can, became a pitcher for them through 1966. Since then, we've had over 75 Japanese-born players play in the United States. Uh, the most recent, as you mentioned, Zoltani. In the interim, we've had some really good pitchers do well. And uh, probably the best known is Ishiro that came over here yes. and got over 3,000 hits. Now, where yes, does, now, now, so we're talking about a Japanese-born player playing the major leagues. What about all the Japanese uh, American players, the, the, the Japanese, yeah. you know, those, those Nisei, Nisei players? That does not take place until 1975. And so a guy by the name of Ryan wow. or Kurosaki comes on board. And, of course, we have one right after that, a second guy who plays much longer in the majors. Since then, we've had over 40 Asian American players play in the Nash, uh, in the major leagues. To cap all this off, just I, I think one of the interesting facts is we got a fellow by the name of Don Wakamatsu. Uh, Don um, was a catcher, made his way through the ranks as a player. He then became a coach. And in 2008, he becomes the first Japanese American to major to, to manage in the majors for the Seattle Mariners. It's been a long road. It's a rough road. It's a road that quite often isn't told. You know, we, we deal with prejudice it that relates to black, but we, but we need to understand that there's a dark side of our history that shows that there was prejudice towards Asians, too. It was Father's Day last weekend, and this is a yeah. really good time for dad jokes, and I hope you got some good groaners out of it. Well, I did. Uh, I, I, told, I, I told the coach, uh, our, 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 uh, you know, the one who provides us with our groaners, that I, I know that he, we've been under the gun because we've been doing some of the shows early, but we've got two here, and these fit groaners because they are going to be hard to get, but you will groan. So here we go. Okay. What do you call a manufacturing facility that makes an okay product? What do you call a manufacturing facility that makes an okay product? I have no idea. This is so bad. It's a satisfactory. That's not bad, though, John. That's a pretty good groaner. Yeah, well, okay. I'll, 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 All right. I'll, I'll get one to get you growing a little bit more. This is an oldie but goodie okay. that the coach brought to my attention when I told him I was going to do this one. So here we go. We're going to get to the, we're going to go to the groaner ball, pull this one out, and here it is. How many tickles does it take to make an octopus laugh? How many tickles does it take to make an octopus laugh? Eight. I would say eight. One That's pretty pin. good. And one for each one. But really, to uh, really get them to laugh, you got it. Ten tickles. <laughs> That's bad. That is bad. Oh, my God. That is good. I like that one. <laughs> oh, ten God. Tickles. You're you're getting you're getting too used to these jokes. That's all I got to say. I am. I am. <laughs> uh, you know, okay. seven years. All right. Sounds dude. good. Uh, we're out of here. <laughs>